Okay, I think that'll do it. 19, can you hear me? I can, 19, 20. Excellent. Awesome. You're the first person to show up early. Um, Congratulations, even if by the slimmest of margins. So good on you. Thanks, I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like Zoom meetings are probably the only hang I will ever show up on time for, let alone (laughs) early. There's something about having to leave the house that means you got to tack an extra like 15, 20 minutes on before I'll show up. Oh yeah. You got to You got to look good when you show up. So oh, right. That, and, that and takes, I take the bus. So yeah. that usually means things take a little Ooh, bit longer. I, I'm like of the opposite stance where I like, because I take the bus, I show up 30 minutes early anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And that's true for work. Like when I'm getting paid, you got to show up early oh, yeah. because I'm not missing a second of that. <laughs> You need to squeeze every penny from this, exactly. from this uh, wage life. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you are you good to go? Yeah. Cool. So I say the words theme song. Hello and welcome to Hello We Don't Talk Let's Talk, a show where I, Christopher Hua, reconnect with old friends. And today we have the uh, occult, uh, Dania <laughs> goldsmith Melm. Dania, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I don't know that I've been described as a cult since I was a baby goth at age 13. <laughs> so feels good to uh, reclaim that title. It's not a term that gets thrown around particularly often these days, even though I'm pretty sure there are witches everywhere. Oh, yes. I'm surrounded by witches. It's the only <laughs> explanation for uh, all of the all of the herb smell in the air. <laughs> Dania, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Uh, it's a Saturday, so we're already better than five out of seven days of the week. <laughs> I like how your your workspace is for this recording. I could like see the back wall and the floor. Like it just seems uh, cozy is the word I will use. So the extra funny thing is that this isn't even my workspace. This is my partner Ed's workspace <laughs> because my workspace, uh, yeah, is not cozy right now. We just moved into a new house. And so we don't have enough furniture to fill it because <laughs> turns out the furniture is actually pretty expensive. <laughs> so my office space has a desk in it and then my dog's crate. So whenever I'm on video, it looks like there's a tiny child cage in the background. <laughs> you, you know, not the tone I want to set for the podcast. I think when people see a cage, they often associate with, yeah, there's probably a kid in there. Yeah, honestly, okay, you joke, but in recent years, I feel like that might be a little bit true. Oh, true. true. The lady herself has come in. We've got we some tiny guest. dog footsteps in here, <laughs> checking things out. All good. Uh, so Dania, I obviously, as, as part of the premise of the show, I don't talk to you that often, right. talk to Ed a lot. So I've, I, uh, my knowledge of your life is through like secondhand information for the most part. Uh, the last time we saw each other was shortly before you tarried off to medicine hat for work, um, like a year and a half ago. <laughs> and, it was and, that, and now, you, and now you you're much. back. Now you're back. I'm back. Yeah. So we did the thing where you go out West for work and realize how much the West is not the East. Small town, Alberta, just like 
not you your skin. You need to have a really thick skin to live in small town Alberta. <laughs> and I don't think I have that. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> um, it's a gorgeous part of the country. I mean, we were right between mountains and some of the really beautiful sections of the prairies. So a good place to be at the beginning of the pandemic because there's pretty much nothing to do except go outside. Mm-hmm. The only unrestricted activity at the time. Oh, the, the only place that's safe. <laughs> yeah, like actually. Um, so I'm glad we did it because I wouldn't have the have had the career opportunities that I've had now if I hadn't done it. Um, because I mean, you've probably experienced this yourself or anyone who's listening probably has. Getting a job in Ontario uh, is a bit of a nightmare, especially if you work in publicly funded education, like I do, uh, there's just not that many opportunities for people who are early career, unless you want to be exploited. And I'm not about that life. So <laughs> having the experience worth. from that means that I can come back and have a job that actually treats people with human dignity. Oh, hell yeah. The job itself is fine. The people that you may interface with on a regular basis, a mixed bag. Yeah, you know, I so far I've had a really good time with it. I in my current job, I'm working at a college at Conestoga College, and mm-hmm. I don't really interface that much with students, which is kind of sad because I actually really like working with students. But I mean, it's online school, you know, people just don't want to spend more time on Zoom than they have to. Mm-hmm. So I get to see lots of people in a teaching context, you know, when I'm teaching a class, but other than that, it's pretty much a solo mission. So I hunker down in my office with my child cage slash dog crate <laughs> in the background. And that's that's my work. Uh, as a people person, I look forward to a time when we can return to kind of more traditional service so that I can see people in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and help them. Yes. Uh, so, so let's rewind to a time where we saw each other with any amount of regularity, which was probably 2010. Oh yeah. Um, like I said, I've kept tabs on your life through secondhand information from Eddie, but, uh, from your own POV, uh, you know, tell me, tell me how things have been for you. Um, I know you went off to university in Kingston, bit of, bit of a bit of away from the hometown. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the funny thing is. I think a lot of people when they're in high school don't really have an idea of what they want their future to look like, or maybe it's kind of vague. Mm-hmm. Maybe they ended up doing something completely different from what they thought their future was going to look like. I feel very strange about the fact that in 2010, I thought my life would look exactly the way that it does now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really sure if that's some sort of extreme willpower situation or some sort of you you manifested it yeah maybe (laughs) maybe I manifested it but in 2010 I knew that I wanted to go to university far enough away from my parents that they couldn't visit me but close (laughs) enough that if I failed miserably and like ran out of money that I could crawl back home (laughs) which is why I chose Kingston Uh, and I knew that I wanted to study English and history that's what I studied I think unlike most people who study English and history or go to undergrad at all, mm-hmm. I actually feel like I totally got my money's worth from mm. undergrad, uh, which is saying something because 
Queens is like the most expensive undergrad <laughs> education you can get in Ontario. Um, but I was really challenged uh, pretty much every day by peers or by professors, TAs, um, to think differently about the world, to work harder, to strive for more, um, to be more compassionate. Hmm. So that was something that I hadn't really expected. And it was intense, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, so you say being more compassionate, like, like how would you have assessed your, your level of compassion for others going into that experience? Well, uh, harken back to your own 18 year old self. Maybe you were less self-centered than I was, but <laughs> I was very self-involved. I, I hope that is a, a more broad trait of teenagers and less a reflection Probably. of myself. But honestly, I think, uh, I was really judgmental about, um, people who came from different situations because I mean, I kind of had the impression that because I grew up in pretty difficult circumstances and like made it, whatever that mm-hmm. means, that surely everyone who doesn't must have had some sort of personal failing. And if you'd asked me if I believed that, I wouldn't have said it, you know, mm-hmm. like I would never have said that out loud to a person. But over time, when you learn more about how, I don't know, historical, political, systemic inequalities impact people around you every single day, and you can live your life, at least as a white person like me, Mm who is completely ignorant of all of those things, I think you have the opportunity to realize that your viewpoint is really limited and to be more compassionate, to think more critically about those systems, or you have the opportunity to say, oh, well, I'm just being brainwashed by my institution. So that's not worth my time. (laughs) I actually remember really vividly. um, This is not a moment that I'm particularly proud of, but it is, I think, pretty emblematic of the learning that happened for me when I was in university, Mm -hmm. being in a Canadian history class, which I took because nothing else fit into my schedule. (laughs) And I thought it would be so boring because Canadian history was really dull in high school, but it turned out that the reason why Canadian history was so uninteresting when I was in high school is because we didn't really learn about any of the controversial elements of Canadian history when mm-hmm. I was in high it's school. Very, it's very, it's yeah. very, several layers of paint to make it Absolutely. Look like for example, I didn't even know in high school that slavery was huge in Canada. I didn't realize that half of Montreal was built by slave labor. Mm. I didn't know uh, anything really about residential schools. I had heard the term, but I didn't know anything about it. And I remember being extremely uh, humbled by an experience in a lecture where we were talking about the residential school system, you know, what it was, the impacts of on people up yeah. until the present. And I remember asking a question about like, well, how many residential schools could there have possibly been? I mean, right. Like it seems crazy that there were these state funded schools that their whole purpose was to, you know, kill out culture. How many could there possibly have been? I find it hard to believe that that many people could have been impacted by it, Mm -hmm. which of course I cringe now (laughs) that I said that uh, because I mean, you have no way of knowing until you 
are presented with an opportunity to learn more, just mm-hmm. how many people have been impacted by systems like that. And one of my classmates actually um, is a descendant of a residential school survivor. And she, I remember her saying, well, you obviously don't know what you're talking about because everyone that I grew up with um, is impacted by residential schools. She's from Siksika First Nation. Mm. And I had never even met anybody who self-identified as Indigenous at that point because I was super sheltered. Yeah. And I think by and large, um, there is, a, it is like heavily sequestered. So until like you get out of high school, the, uh, like, unless you're, you're traveling to like visit um, like reservations, you're probably, or, or are in like rural Canada, it's not likely that you're going to encounter a lot of people who identify as Indigenous. Well, and so that's what I believed at the time too, but I feel like once I became more aware of, you know, the presence of different cultures, it was almost like confirmation bias. Like once you're aware that it exists, you can see it, you can perceive it. Um, Because since I went to university, I mean, I've met lots of people who, Mm -hmm. you know, are Indigenous or identify as like Native, um, who've had very different life experiences from me, or if they've had very similar life experiences, depending on what part of the country they live in. But I guess one of the things that stood out to me the most about that particular conversation was that I could have been really interested in history, been really interested in school, done really well, made it to university to study history Mm -hmm. and be so ignorant about very basic, very recent parts of our own nation's history. That was very humbling. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, what have I been doing all this time? Well, yeah, there's this blind spot. Yeah. I remember feeling really angry, like that, I don't know, the feeling that you've been lied to or something by mm. your teachers. It's kind of like uh, when you learn math and then you find 10 out years there are later, negative numbers. Yeah, 10 years later, they say, <laughs> oh, it's actually all fake. We have to unlearn everything that we just did because <laughs> it's different now. That was how I felt when I went to university. And at first, I think. I was really embarrassed and kind of ashamed of how little I knew about, I don't know, pretty much everything in (laughs) in the world. Um, And then I just decided, you know what, like, what is the point of this education if I'm not going to take the opportunity to learn as much as I humanly can uh, about all the things that I have never even heard of and it's amazing how much you can learn in four years if you just stop talking long enough to hear what people have to say. <laughs> Sounds like you really made the most of that, uh, that undergrad experience. I think so. Um, which is good because when I went to graduate school, I was a little less interested in <laughs> what I studied. <laughs> um, so yes, to be a librarian, you need a master's degree I have a lot of feelings about that, Um, but suffice it to say that um, the Masters of Library and Information Science, which is the degree that I have, I went to Western to get that. And most of the people in my classes had never even worked in a library or had never worked a customer service job. That's surprising. Yeah, because what ends up happening is people, well, 
a lot of people graduate with arts degrees and then realize, oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) what am I supposed to do? (laughs) And I think a lot of those people genuinely see themselves succeeding or doing well or being happy working in a library or a related institution. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just need something to do and think, well, I like reading. I like helping people. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to library school today. And you end up with a lot of folks who don't really have much life experience. And so I didn't always find it to be an environment where I was learning a lot or where I was being very challenged by most of my peers. Although, I mean, of course there are always exceptions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I felt um, didn't have the same level of experience that I had working in libraries because I had been working in them since I was 16. Yeah. Um, And I had had some pretty, interesting experiences working in libraries for underserved communities in Kingston that were, I think, pretty foundational to thinking about how I, how I approach library work, which I think of as really more of a community service that's meant to just connect people to resources and less of a place where people go to be quiet and engage with books. Mm -hmm. And you might think how many people make it all the way to library school who actually believe those kinds of very outdated stereotypes. It's a lot. (laughs) It's so many that the MLIS program I went to on their website, they have a list of things um, that you shouldn't have as part of your personality. If you apply to the program. And one of them is don't apply to the program because you love reading. (laughs) (laughs) So that experience I think was pretty different from undergrad where I felt like I learned so much. I was so challenged. I met people from many different walks of life, people from different cultures, different religions, people who were older than me, people who were younger than me, people with kids, um, people who were, you know, like me living in a house with six roommates in library school. It was pretty much all white middle-class 20 somethings like me, Mm -hmm. um, who had even less, experience, you know, than I did. And so I thought that for the most part, the actual school, the learning in library school left a little bit to be desired, but it was kind of cool because I had the opportunity then to not work hard at school for the first time ever in my life, (laughs) um, to kind of just be a person in a seat and, have a social life, (laughs) Mm. which I hadn't had in undergrad because I was, you know, pretty much breaking my back to get perfect grades and for my scholarship and working full time. So that was it. You know, you wake Mm. up at 6 a.m., do your schoolwork, go to work at 4 p.m., come home at 1030 and go to sleep so that you can do it all the next day. You're you're grinding one thing or another. There's no time for it grinding out the the relationship XP with other people. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I guess at the time I thought that that was what I had to do. Mm -hmm. I think looking back now, I'm like, Oh, I think I was just way too proud and made it a lot harder than it had to be. (laughs) (laughs) 
like I definitely could have taken a loan or, you know, something to yeah. make it easier. Um, but I was really determined to graduate without any student debt because I knew that I was going to go to library school, which is a very expensive graduate program. That's why I don't like it because I think <laughs> it um, is a huge barrier for a lot of people mm-hmm. who are underrepresented in the profession. It's like 85% white people who work in libraries, at least with the role of librarian. And most of those white people are middle-class. It's not exactly a surprise given that yeah. you have to pay like 20 grand to get a piece of paper. Damn. Yeah. And it's a professional degree. So you can't qualify for like governmental funding. Mm-hmm. So it's a total cash cow for universities because you can't be a librarian without the degree. You have to get it Thanks. if you want to be a librarian. And the salary range of librarians is so wide that depending on where you work or what the circumstances are, you may be making like the same amount of money as you would have when you graduated with your English degree. So mm. it's that's a, that's a hard value proposition to make. Yeah, absolutely. And the only reason I think I stuck with it was because I knew that I wanted to be a librarian and I wanted to be a librarian instead of some sort of other library work because librarians have, are the most stable. Usually if you can get a full-time permanent job in libraries, it's only as a librarian. Everything else is like contract work or seasonal. Wow. What kind yeah. of what kind of roles exist within like the library system? Like like what mm-hmm. what classifies as a librarian versus some other role? So this is one of those things where you kind of realize how fluid those barriers are. When I worked in public libraries, um, the major difference was that usually librarians had some sort of supervisory component or you did more with money. Like you would purchase resources. Those resources might be like streaming video platforms or books, Um, could also be equipment, Mm -hmm. you know, like 3D printers, things like that. Whereas people who had different job titles, like library assistant is the common one in public libraries. Uh, You would do all the frontline service. So the people who you see when you walk into a library who work at at a desk or who are on the floor asking you if you want help, those people are usually not librarians. Sometimes they are depending on the model of how they staff their library. But most of the time, those folks are library assistants and In my opinion, I've learned more about library service and about being a librarian from working with library assistants and being a library assistant than I ever did in my master's program, because those are the folks who have to show up when things are really hard, you know, when there's someone in the library who's in crisis, very common uh, in a public library for people who are extremely vulnerable to wind up there. It's Mm -hmm. free. It's open, you know, 12 hours a day. It's warm. It's got a roof. Yeah. People show up. We have comfy furniture. So sometimes that means that, you know, you need to handle a situation that can rapidly escalate uh, and you have to handle it with care so that you can make sure that, you know, you're helping these people instead of making it much worse for them. Yeah. Those are also the folks who have to deal with people yelling at them about, 
late fees or wait lists or how few parking spaces there are or, you know, anything else that frontline service workers have mm-hmm. to deal with. And um, in public libraries, most of the time, if you're a librarian, you have an office. So you're separate from the rest of the building uh, most of the time. And usually what you would do is you would purchase those collections resources that I mentioned, like, you know, the things that people borrow from the library. Mm -hmm. And the other major thing that you would do is programming. So if you go to an event at the library, whether that's a story time for your child or a community event that's put on in partnership between the library and one of the associations that supports newcomers, that's all about, um, you know, preventing workplace harassment. That's also organized by a librarian usually. And there's a pretty wide gamut of what kinds of things are available. And that really depends on the community that the library serves. Mm -hmm. Kitchener Public Library, I think, does a really good job of responding to the needs of a growing community. Um, They do a lot of really great work with community organizations. And so when I went to library school, I thought that's what I would do. I thought I would work in a public library for my whole career. I had up until that point done almost 10 years in public libraries and it was hard sometimes um, because it's kind of heartbreaking to see, you know, how much of a struggle it is for some people to live. But it was also really rewarding because you would build relationships with people who you would see every single day and you would build really deep connections and roots within a local community you know, you'd leave work and you'd see 15, 20 people on your walk home that you recognized and they'd all wave at you. Even if two weeks previously, they'd been yelling at you about how they had a fine. (laughs) Um, But it's not very stable in public libraries. So usually when you're a new graduate, like I was, you work part-time or you work a contract job. Mm -hmm. And so I was working part-time at a public library after graduation as a librarian, which I was really salty about because I wanted a full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But a lot of my peers thought I was super lucky to have a job at all as a librarian, even if it was part-time. Most of my peers didn't find a job until, you know, between six to eight months after graduation. And I had a job right away, Um, which gives you a sense as to what the, you know, the field is like. Um, And then what ended up happening basically was that my dad died and I was like, wow, is this really what I want to be dealing with in my life when there's something really big in my personal life that's happened? Mm -hmm. Am I really going to grind it out working 25 hours a week with no benefits, no vacation so that people can yell at me 25 (laughs) hours a week and I can't even afford to live? Not enticing. Yeah. And so I totally like quit my job in like a fit of rage, basically. It was very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And I totally got away with it because what are they going to do? Get mad at you because you're upset that your dad's dead? Like, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) So I totally got away with it. Unless they're absolute monsters. Yeah. Even though it was pretty unprofessional. So I actually feel a little bit bad for some of the people that I was working with who I sort of left hanging. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you go through it sometimes. So I quit my job. 
it, it presents an opportunity for someone else who may have been struggling to find work at least. So there, yeah, there's a silver lining. That's right. There. Yeah. Someone else could take those 25 hours a week. And they did, of course. And that job gets posted every two years now because <laughs> no one can hang on to that for it's a real revolving forever. door. Yeah, exactly. And so I ended up um, kind of falling into academic libraries through nepotism, as you do. <laughs> uh, knew a person who knew a person. And they were like, hey, I need to hire a librarian. You know anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Knowing full well that, you know, I was looking for the, a job. The, the, the classic uh, just absolute luck of people that were involved. Absolutely. And, anybody uh, who listened to last week's episode will understand what that means. <laughs> I haven't listened to it, but now I have to go back and check it out because it was <laughs> totally luck and yeah. and people helping you out, you mm-hmm. know? So ended up in academic libraries, which are completely different. Um, You work with different people, you do different roles. So when I was in a public library, customer service was pretty much 80% of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I helped people answer questions like, you know, what comic book should I let my kid read to when was the typewriter invented to, hey, I brought this branch from a tree in what tree is this from (laughs) (laughs) I answered questions like that all day and I honestly that part of my job was amazing I love yeah that sounds like an absolute blast just like a scouter hunt of information yeah it was really cool Uh, if you can get it full time I highly recommend it (laughs) in academic libraries um my skill set is mostly around teaching and research skills so I work with students now predominantly students, but some faculty too, to help them be more empowered to make good decisions about finding information online. It's just really shocking how easily taken in people are by information sources that are are either completely, completely, you know, unreliable or um, people don't seem able to recognize that a lot of the skills that they use in their personal life are totally transferable to an academic context. You know, you meet someone at a party, they're a friend of a friend. And then two days later you found their secret Instagram page. You obviously have the research skills that you need to find some articles Mm -hmm. for your assignment in your psychology class. Like you clearly (laughs) have the tenacity to fiddle around and find the answer to a question. If you really want to know but a lot of people don't realize how transferable those are. And so that's pretty much what I do is make the links between the types of things that people do all the time and their quest to know more <laughs> um, and help them use that for school. Make it relatable, make it a tool. Yeah, basically. pretty much. And um, I don't really get to do much customer service now. So I think that maybe it would be hard to go back to it because I think you need a thick skin (laughs) and I'm a little out of practice (laughs) and I'm a bit of a sensitive Sally. I don't know if you've ever experienced this because Chris, I know you've worked lots of customer service jobs too, where, you know, someone's really mean to you and you're on the outside, you're completely unaffected, but internally you're like, Oh, that one (laughs) cut deep. (laughs) Uh, that, that's me receiving any sort of feedback on a job that I did incorrectly. 
Okay. I was like, man, I don't want to be in this one-on-one anymore. <laughs> Just get me out of here. I'll All be right. We'll never work in a public library, Chris, because people will say everything from, you know, uh, you're stupid and you shouldn't work here to you need to go on a diet, um, like to your face while you're at work. Jesus Christ. I know. And I just eventually thought like, man, the people who can deal with this, they are saintly. (laughs) Nobody talks to me like that. Only I get to talk to me like that. Exactly. Yeah. How dare you. (laughs) And my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so wow, what a what a long or lengthy walkthrough, I guess, how, how you've wound up in your current position, career. Yeah. Um I don't know how much of this conversation you want to start talking about work. Um so so let's branch out to outside of work. I, I know you've become a big fan of uh uh K dramas and K pop oh. things related to Korea and and the yes. broad space. Um, how much of that was brought on by the, uh, cultural background of your partner versus just like, uh, like individual sort of interest that just sort of came up and is just like a coincidence. Okay. So this is going to sound very strange because I think most people would assume that either like if you're a white gal who's dating a Korean guy, you probably were a Korea boo when you met or mm-hmm. you got into like Korean entertainment because of your partner. Neither of those things was true. <laughs> Um, I got into K-dramas first because I really like watching uh, miniseries. I don't like watching a TV show that goes on forever. Mm-hmm. I want to watch something that was intended to be short. And so the writing is tighter. You know, things make mm-hmm. more sense. You get that sense of finality. It's not drawing on yeah, as it gets exactly. into the later seasons. You get exactly. a nice satisfying ending like like and good- K-dramas often follow a format where they only run for one season and they only have 16 episodes. So I was doing some Googling, you know, <laughs> occupational hazard, looking for types of TV shows uh, that were similar to miniseries that weren't from, you know, the BBC or something like that, mm-hmm. because I watched every British, Irish, Scottish short form <laughs> show that I could find. And I was starting to realize that English language productions were limiting like what I could consume. Mm-hmm. And looking for shorter running shows, I found K-dramas and I like downloaded them from a super sketchy site with really <laughs> weird subtitles. And I didn't really know anything about Korean culture because at that point, my partner who's Korean um, never talked to me anyway about being Korean. Um, Didn't speak Korean with his parents or his siblings. Didn't even eat Korean food when we would go and visit his parents. Like they would make a (laughs) Korean meal and then they'd make meat and potatoes and he would eat the meat and potatoes. Absolutely exposed. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got really into K dramas and I think he was kind of just like, good for you, man, you know, do your thing. I'll just be over totally here. Totally uninterested. Yeah. Totally uninterested. And that might be like a genre thing. I was mostly interested in watching like romances and crime procedurals, mm-hmm. not really his thing. Um, so maybe that was why, but it wasn't until a couple of years later that, I don't know, he started getting more in touch um, with his culture and, I think part of that was moving to small town Alberta Mm -hmm. and 
being one of very few visible minorities, let alone a Korean person in our community and realizing, I think, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that maybe it was like the first time that he felt in a very conscious way, like other or different from mm-hmm. so many people around him. So I think he had just taken it kind of for granted that he would always be surrounded by other people who were East Asian. And at that point I got really lucky because when he started getting into like his culture more, he started cooking amazing Korean food. <laughs> so hell yeah. Win win. And uh, he started getting more into speaking Korean. So that helped me a lot because I think a lot of nuances that I was missing um, in the shows that I was watching, he was able to explain. So I'd be mm-hmm. watching something on the TV and he'd be, you know, playing on his phone or something. And he'd scoff at something on the television and he'd be like, <laughs> oh. and I totally didn't get the joke. And he explain this. explain this now. I'm pausing. Yeah, exactly. I'd be like, what? What's so funny? I need to, I need to understand. And um, so I feel like, I can kind of be a cheerleader for him (laughs) as he gets more into um, specifically like language related things for, for his culture. But Mm -hmm. I'm, it's not really like, you know, that's not my jury, obviously. (laughs) I'm just someone who likes watching TV. And uh, so, you know, if I can be along for the ride, then that's just, there's just icing on the cake at this point. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't really like watch K-dramas together or anything like that. He's also terrible at finishing shows. So mm. I need to finish what I start. <laughs> yeah. That's why I wanted a 16 episode show, you know, I want to see it to the end. Exactly. Uh, I don't know what it is. He just can't finish a show. So <laughs> we don't necessarily do it together, but I feel like I can be um, more involved in that part of his life just by virtue of, being more aware of Korean culture. Um, Cause I've learned a lot about it just from watching TV. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously a lot of your culture will be represented in the media that you produce. So sure. TV is usually dramatized, Yeah. but going from knowing absolutely nothing, being completely ignorant of Korean culture to watching Korean TV shows or listening to Korean language music every week, you're going to pick up a few things. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think the other part too, is that we're at the point in our lives now where we're thinking about having kids soon. Mm. And if we did have kids, you know, the old fashioned way, they would be half Korean. And I feel like I don't want to be that shitty white parent of my (laughs) mixed race kids who doesn't even try to know anything about their culture. (laughs) So that's part of it, too, is that if we do have kids, we want them to be able to speak at least basic Korean. So I got to beef up my Korean because I don't want my partner and my kids talking shit about me. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be able to contribute. (laughs) That is a good defense uh, to to (laughs) a a preventative measure. Exactly. Because that's how you should approach raising your kids, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, very cool. Uh, have you relayed this to his, uh, this this um, uh, potential for kids to his parents yet? Because I know that oh, they're very yeah. much of one mind of, about it. 
gosh. So for a really long time, we didn't even know if we wanted kids. So we were like, you know, mm-hmm. don't bring it up. Right. Like, don't ask me step off kind of a, an attitude. Um, but my partner is the youngest of three. And neither of his siblings. older siblings have children. Yeah. So his parents are starting to get a little anxious <laughs> and they're not very traditional. And I think they've worked really hard as best they can to not pressure us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think everyone's <laughs> patience wears thin after a while. And so the last time that we saw them, they were visiting us at the house that we just bought, mm-hmm. which is obviously a little big for two yep. people. And they basically said, hmm, what you going to do with all those rooms? Better make some babies to fill them up. <laughs> and normally I would say something like, mm, yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe in the future kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but I thought I would throw his parents a bone this time. And I said, yeah, you know, that's the plan. And every time we've seen them since, my father-in-law looks right at my belly, like the whole time. He doesn't look me in the eyes anymore. He's just looking right at my belly. And John, John rules. <laughs> yeah. So I think he's like, that's my, that's the, like the dynasty right there. <laughs> just like, look at belly, look at watch, look at belly, look at watch. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right, all right. So I don't know how to break the news to him that we're not like actively trying yeah. this second, but I don't know. Hope is good for people. Maybe, maybe so he'll find I'll out like, through this recording. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Let send me, it to let him. Me know, let me know if you need anything edited out. Okay. I'll let you know. Okay. Um, but yes, that is, yeah, a huge thing for his parents. Obviously they want grandchildren. For sure. I think my partner's mom knows not to say anything. She knows better than to bring it up. Uh, And my parents, I mean, I don't think my parents would really care. You know what I mean? They're Mm -hmm. not the kind of people who want grandkids, but I don't think they oppose grandkids. Yeah. They don't really hate the idea. I think they're more like, well, they're your kids. So don't expect me to raise them. (laughs) (laughs) Which fair. Honestly, uh, it's true. So my, you know, my parental situation yep. is my stepmom. And I think she's kind of just like, you know, live your life, speak your truth. But uh, I'm going to do my own thing as a retired professor. So don't cramp my style by expecting me to babysit, <laughs> <laughs> which I respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of where things are at in terms of that. I mean, Got it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I had something that I was going to ask, but it slipped my mind. So I'm just going to pivot to the only other aspect I typically associate with you. Sure. Uh, obviously, books. Ah, uh, yes. Major part of uh, my books, your a personality trait. Yes. <laughs> um, you've been a big reader for as long as I've known you. Um, yeah. Do you remember what brought that on? Yes, actually. Um, So I think people would probably be surprised to know that I actually really didn't like reading when I was small um, because why would I bother reading myself when my dad would do it for me and he would read stories out loud, voice all the characters, sing songs. Real performance. 
Yeah, absolutely. He was um, like a storyteller. That was like his craft. And so very cool. It was, it was super cool. It was like having a live performance audio book. And so he read all of the Lord of the Rings books, um, all the Harry Potter books, all of the Narnia books, you know, all the classic children's fantasy and some Mm -hmm. adult fantasy too. (laughs) Um, And I think when I got to the point where I was kind of too old to have my dad reading me a bedtime story every night, Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think his eyesight was getting pretty bad too. So he was thinking, okay, I can't be reading, you know, for an hour every night anymore. I would have been maybe seven or eight. And I just didn't read at all. It's like, it's not the same when you're doing it yourself as it is when (laughs) your dad does the whole song and dance for you. So he kind of just died a natural death in terms of my hobbies. It was like, okay, I'll hang out with my friends, play outside, those were my two things, you know, yep. like manhunt. But what else do you do at that right. age? Exactly. And my family, um, at the time, I would have described my parents if I had had this vocabulary, probably as Luddites. <laughs> they, we didn't really have a TV. We didn't have a computer. Obviously, no video games. Mm-hmm. So it was either analog stuff like reading or playing outside and I chose playing outside. And then I think when I would have been about nine, my parents bought a cabin in Northern Ontario and it didn't have any power, didn't have any running water and there were no kids. And because it was in Northern Ontario, it took like 12 hours to drive there, Mm -hmm. including, you know, pit stops here and there. So when we would go, We went for a long time, you know, two weeks, three weeks in the summer. Well, what are you going to do for two (laughs) or three weeks? When there's no one else around. When there's no kids and there's no power and your parents are busy doing grown shit, you know? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not your old in the woods, you're left to your own devices. Yeah, exactly. So. I played outside as much as I possibly could, only child style, you know, mm-hmm. pretty good at entertaining myself. And then it was just like, it was too much. I needed to try something different. So my dad took me to the local public library, mm-hmm. which when I say local, I mean, it was like a 40 minute drive to the oh, nearest yeah. town. It was the one and, within like two hours. Yeah, exactly. Anywhere. And so we couldn't borrow anything because we didn't live in the area, but they had a book sale, you know, where they would take the books that people didn't want to borrow anymore Mm -hmm. um, or they were damaged or something like that. And they'd sell them for, you know, 10 cents, 50 cents. And we bought everything. Wow. Pretty much. Um, So I'm talking like James Patterson, like the types of books that you buy at the airport, women's fiction, like Amish romance and what is women's fiction? Yeah, I've um, it's just literary fiction, but it's about women, so it. therefore okay. it doesn't deserve the same respect. Carry, carry on, yeah, <laughs> tangent. Um, <laughs> so of those books, the only one that I think was actually intended for child consumption was this book called Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech, which was about this young girl who spends a summer um, 
pretty much mourning the death of her mom. And I don't know, I really just devoured it. I probably read it half a dozen times in the two weeks that we were there. Um, But to give you a sense as to how poor some of my reading skills were, one of the main characters in the book, her name is Penelope. Um, But I had not done a lot of reading. And most of the character names in Narnia or Harry Potter are, you know, odd. Sure. But Penelope does not really look on the page the way that you would pronounce it. Of course. So I called her Pennylope for the whole summer and no one corrected me. My parents <laughs> never once said, I wonder if maybe she's it trying. It looks like the words elope and pen put together. Like, yeah, exactly. Why would it not be that? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, and that was pretty much the beginning of the end. Uh, from that point, I think it was really hard for my parents to keep up with. Um, <laughs> consumption. The, yeah, exactly. Hence... We just started going to the library every week. My parents would bring two tote bags and basically they would just put their hand into the shelf and knock everything (laughs) off into the bag. And I'd pick something up and be like, nope, onto the next one. Or I would sit there for hours reading the whole thing. And that's pretty much how I got into reading. Haven't really stopped since. Uh, How have you found your, your tastes have adjusted as you've gotten older? Well, so one of the funny things I think about being more secure in yourself as an adult is that what other people think about what you do with your time just matters so much less. Mm -hmm. So there was a period that lasted, I don't know, like 10 years where I felt like it was really important that I read serious books because I was serious and smart. (laughs) So, you know, Um, classics, the, all the major Canadian and American literary novels, um, basically anything that could have won an award that had the word literature in it was a book that I would read and everything else was also something I would read, but I would feel kind of like guilty, like a guilty pleasure. Oh, for sure. And then I think maybe, you know, with time and by talking to other people, I realized that like part of that was just, you know, internalized misogyny. It's like, (laughs) why, why shouldn't I enjoy, um, you know, fantasy or science fiction or romance novels like or women's fiction why not like what is that really so wrong and also like I'm reading it for my own time (laughs) why should I have to account to anyone exactly yeah so now I think I just read what interests me and it doesn't really bother me at all what people think about it. Frankly, if people think less of me because of what I'm reading, they're not worth my time. Yeah, that's so, on them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so these days, those are my two major genres would be fantasy and romance. Um, pretty ideal in the pandemic because it's like you can totally take yourself out of your current experience into something that's extremely unlikely to happen, whether it's, (laughs) you know, fighting dragons or uh, being swept off your feet by one of 500 dukes, just in (laughs) case people out there don't know. Um, There just were not that many dukes in Regency era England. So sorry to break it to you. That'd be too many territories. It'd be meaningless at that point. Exactly. So yeah, I really enjoy it. It's great escapism. And I found uh, really 
good community with other readers, mostly women. Mm-hmm. That way, there are huge, really active um, romance reading communities and fantasy reading communities online. But one of the things that I find a little bit exhausting about fantasy community is that I think that it can get pretty doodly mm. <laughs> depending on, you know, the content, who you, who you are hanging out with and where, um, you know, I just want to be able to have a conversation about what I'm reading. I don't really want to get into like all the reasons why, um, why we need to read more books um, by white authors or yeah. (laughs) Yes. There's a whole, okay. So there's a whole saga that I can't even begin to explain because it's truly like bananas. Like we're talking major internet drama, but there's a serious, serious award for science fiction and fantasy called the Hugo awards. Mm -hmm. And they have been plagued by trolls over the years who are very mad that N.K. Jemison, uh, who's a black woman, has won the Hugo like four times in the last five years. They're real it, salty about that. It, it turns out when you do something well, you continue to do it well. Like who who would have thought? Yeah, it, conti- it, it turns out that if you just do the same old shit that people have been reading for 70 years and you're not even that good at it, that no one gives a fuck about your book. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not going to win the Hugo. Um, and these people who don't like the fact that Nora K. Jemison has mm-hmm. won this prize, they call themselves, okay, are you ready for this? I, the sad puppies. I... They call themselves the sad puppies. Yeah. That's a terrible... I know. Independent of anything. That's just like a terrible brand choice. <laughs> no. So folks who are listening, if you want to know about the like truly crazy, insane culture that surrounds this particular award and some of the infighting that happens in science fiction fantasy communities, uh, yeah, just Google Sad Puppies and Hugo and you will you will have a, a world... A rabbit hole to just yeah. go down unfold before you. (laughs) So one of the things that I like about reading romance is that um, because it's only been within like the last 10 years that it's really caught on in mainstream communities, Mm -hmm. they don't have the same legacy of cultural baggage that things (laughs) like sci-fi and fantasy have, Mm -hmm. you know, give it another 50 years. I'm sure that romance will have that as well. Um, But I find it to be like just pretty chill group of people, you know, like any group online, uh, there are times where you need to log off and go outside and touch some grass. But (laughs) other than that, it's something that I really enjoy. And um, because people are so active in spaces like Twitter around romance reading, it's a Mm -hmm. good way to meet new people and stay connected when all you can really do is stay at home for two years. Yep. Yeah, so that's something that I've spent a lot of time doing since the pandemic started. Hell yeah, and it, it seems like you've gotten a lot of joy out of it, so. Yeah, absolutely. That rules. Um, so obviously, books are being written and published every day. Um, like, how, how does one go about finding new material uh, mm. to, to consume? So there are lots of different ways. Um, probably the most common way that people find books now is either by going onto Amazon or going onto Goodreads. 
Goodreads is owned by Amazon, so you could argue that it's like the same thing. <laughs> um, Goodreads, for those who haven't used it, is just like essentially a social networking site to track your reading. So you make shelves for all the books that you're interested in, and then you add friends who also add their shelves, and you can talk about books and all that good stuff. Um, because Goodreads is owned by Amazon, they have a really strong marketing component. Mm -hmm. So they have lots of like newsletters that go out every month, depending on the types of genres or styles of books that you say that you're interested in, they'll send you a newsletter. So that's one way. Um, so word of mouth is a big thing because people that you're friends with on Goodreads will talk about the books that they love. The other part is of course, you know, newsletters from Goodreads. Um, I usually hear about new books on Twitter because I follow a lot of people from publishing. So mm -hmm. that's their job. They post about new books that are coming out. And my current position actually working in a library has nothing to do with buying fiction. Like yeah. the types of books that I buy for my institution, I would never read in my spare time. Like, mm -hmm. Trauma-informed healthcare assessments for nursing professionals. Yeah, I'm not going to read that <laughs> to escape my life. A lot, of, a lot of technical documentation that, you know what, yeah. this is not what you're doing the reading for. Exactly. So when I want to do leisure reading, I usually go on Twitter to see what people are talking about, or I'll go on Goodreads. And um, one thing that I find is that, you know, if you're friends with enough people online, somehow... Um, certain types of media will just be everywhere. Like mm -hmm. when Animal Crossing was everywhere and everyone was talking about it. And even though I've pretty much never played a video game that wasn't a battle puzzler, <laughs> I still knew everything about Animal Crossing. I had seen people playing it. Like I was very aware of its presence. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're really into reading, it's the same thing. Like you hear about books and you'll hear about the same title enough that it's like, oh yeah, I've basically read this already. <laughs> that's like how I, uh, that, that's how I learned about the plot of Star Wars. It's just like, <laughs> here's, here's every mention of Star Wars and culture. You get the gist of it. And so you've never seen Star Wars? Nope. I saw, I got invited to see The Force Awakens. So I was like, yeah, I, I, I know the backstory enough to like figure out where, where this is, who, who these characters are. I saw it, I enjoyed the film, and then I didn't see the rest of the new trilogy. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is fun. I honestly feel like that's just not that big of a deal. Exactly. And I say this as a science fiction fantasy <laughs> fan, okay? I just feel like, you know, nothing wrong with loving Star Wars, but it's also not the be-all, end-all. Mm -hmm. um, so what I have is that, like, in an era where, like, self-publishing is as accessible as, it, as it's ever been... Um, does it still have that sort of stigma? It's just like, well, this is self-published and um, so it's like more easily dismissible or, or do you feel like there's uh, content there that, that is worthy of um, more, more views? I more feel views? like those are two separate questions. Probably. So I'll start with the first one. Um, I think that if you already are into books and reading, you know, it's just like with indie video games, right? Everybody knows that there are some really high quality indie games. And just like everything else, there are some shitty ones too. Sure. It's the same thing with self-publishing. Um, 
one of the critiques of traditional publishing, particularly for novels, is that it's very challenging for underrepresented authors to get published. Mm-hmm. Because essentially what happens is they write a story that represents their own lived experience, whatever that may be. Maybe it reflects like their religious culture or their ethnic culture, or maybe they're writing about queer experience or disability experience. And people who work in publishing who are, yes, you could have probably guessed, mostly white people who are middle class don't connect with those stories. So they don't buy them because their assumption is that if I don't connect with this, neither will other readers. That is, of course, changing. There are people who are working so, so hard to make more space in publishing for people particularly in books for young people, for children and young adults, that has caught on a lot more. So some people believe that it's over and we don't have to worry about underrepresented authors uh, being published, that like those walls have been broken down and that it's not a big deal anymore. That's very naive, of course. (laughs) Um, So I think that self-publishing often provides an opportunity for people to make their stories accessible to people who never would have been able to read them because they wouldn't be published for Mm -hmm. systemic reasons. But I also think that there are some people who have been successful in traditional publishing who also choose to self-publish simultaneously. And sometimes the reason for that is just economics. Mm -hmm. Um, In self-publishing, if you're successful, you make more money than you do like per unit sale if you're doing traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. The reason why most people want their book to be traditionally published is because they know that you have a much wider reach, right? If your publishing company says in a meeting, a closed door meeting, Chris's book is going to be a bestseller. We're going to make it a bestseller. They have the resources to make that happen. If you are an unknown author who has no track record, pretty hard to sell a lot uh, with a self-published novel. People who are already established can do a lot better because mm. they already have a they already have that backing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that there are some people who believe that self-publishing means that your book is bad. Um, I've read a lot of traditionally published books that I thought were garbage, like a lot, get through it just like who vetted this <laughs> yeah this? and i'm talking like you know not books where i didn't connect with the characters or i didn't like the writing i'm talking about you know books where it didn't make sense was riddled with grammatical errors spelling mistakes typos like just poorly produced Content. work yeah and at that point why wouldn't you just self-publish because the idea with traditionally published work is that there's supposed to be editorial teams working on your stuff right so mm-hmm. that those there's a, there's a layer of scrutiny uh, yeah. to it. I mean, that's the assumption, mm-hmm. right? But apparently that doesn't always bear out. So I do think that there is stigma around it. Um, I don't read that many self-published novels, honestly. But it's not because I think that they're poor quality. It's because mm-hmm. it's harder to hear about them. So you don't hear about indie books as much through resources like Goodreads or Amazon or even Twitter. Um, 
you have to be seeking it out usually for an indie book to cross your radar. Or sometimes what will happen is a book will be self-published and then it gets big in a certain community and a publisher will buy the rights Mm -hmm. and then they'll publish it. Yep. Makes sense. So then I hear about it, but it's not really an indie book anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one thing that I often think about is the idea that um, getting published is this thing that aspiring writers I don't know, strive towards, you know, Mm -hmm. like this will give you some sort of legitimacy as a writer that you can't get by self-publishing. I think that that's becoming less true, but it, but I mean, if you want your book to make money, it's a lot harder to do that uh, unless you already have an established following, if you're going to publish it yourself. Very fair. Yeah. I mean, publishing is an industry like anything else, Mm -hmm. right? So I mean, the idea that books get popular because of their merit is like laughable to me. (laughs) The reason why books become popular is because there are people who work tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure that you hear about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if something does get popular without that kind of backing, it usually means that there's huge reader buy-in. Like people have been clamoring for a story like that for a long time and it gets really big. Or someone bought the movie rights. (laughs) Um, In the vein of like something that people have been clamoring for, like, like what is something that you currently think that uh, is like underserved as a storyline that that you would like to see? Yeah. So something that I have wanted for a really long time is more, um, quiet fantasy, which I would describe as kind of like slice of life type fantasy stories where they're not like based on some chosen one archetype who's saving the empire or tons of action. Usually they involve some light political intrigue and maybe some small stakes interpersonal drama at like a local level, you know, neighbors, you know, who are scared of you because of your magical abilities or, Mm. or something like that. A newcomer in town who has a different type of magic or is from a different region. And so they have to navigate their otherness in the community. But a a lot of those quiet fantasies um, are hella white. So, (laughs) you know, it's like all coded ancient, you know, middle ages, Mm -hmm. European history you don't find many fantasy novels that are rooted in um, Asian, like East Asian or South Asian cultures. I mean, you just don't find that Mm -hmm. there are more now being published. Actually, this is a really good year for people out there who do like high fantasy with lots of like epic battles. If you're into fantasy, but you want to read from a different cultural perspective, there are some major books that will get popular because they have the publisher backing. Um, I mean, the obvious one for my fantasy readers out there is RF Kuang's The Poppy War, which is inspired by The Rape of Nanking. Mm. Um, Super, like, incredibly ambitious and well-executed series um, written by a young Chinese woman. So, I mean, you don't, that's not something that would have happened 20 years ago. 
But I also have never seen a single East Asian fantasy novel that wasn't about fighting wars, dismantling empire, um, fighting oppression, you know, you don't get to see many of those stories that involve people just living their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and maybe that's because you have to do the epic stuff before you can reach the quieter, more slow-paced, introspective, character-driven stories. Um, maybe that's why, but that's certainly something that I think is underrepresented. I want to be able to read more slice of life t- type fantasies about people who are living in different, you know, parts of the world. They're in different settings. They have magical traditions or different, you know, pantheons of gods that come from, you know, non-Judeo-Christian yeah. cultures. <laughs> uh, again, you know, anyone who reads a lot of fantasy or sci-fi is probably thinking, oh, I can think of lots of books that are from different cultures. Um, but you can probably name 10 and they're probably from the last five years and they're all epic. That's because mm. I can think of them too. <laughs> That's something that I want more of. Um, and I think people would read them, you know, like there's a reason why people enjoy studio Ghibli films, even though most of them, nothing happens. <laughs> it's, not, it's not super grand. It's just like this nice little, little treat. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I want, especially these days. I just want a nice little like soothing adventure. I don't want to feel <laughs> angsty. I don't want to be worried that my favorite is going to die. Yeah. I, I want to know that we all live at the end. Um, yeah. So that's something that uh, if any publishing people are listening, uh, I would love it. <laughs> they're if they're out there and they're definitely listening to my show. <laughs> yeah. You see, this is like okay. This is uh, this is the the person we want to reach out to. We see the we we see Danya in the title. We're just like okay, now we know. Just don't put sad puppies in the title. <laughs> it will you. I'm like actually not joking. Okay. <laughs> um, you're not really a big reader, are you, Chris? I am not. I have several books, all of them, uh, firmly grounded in comedy just like sitting in this closet behind me because i don't have a bookshelf yeah um and that's about it i haven't read most of them and i don't know if i ever will (laughs) and see that's one of those really interesting things because you obviously love a good story i mean you play world of warcraft so yeah (laughs) You don't you don't uh, like the story uh, uh, element there? I was gonna say, like, like the story is cool. I wouldn't say my main draw is the story aspect of it. Um a lot of my gaming is based on like uh like a social element. So like okay. any sort of like team cooperative uh like gameplay right. is incredibly in my wheelhouse versus like a single player RPG is not something that I like overly find myself drawn to. Okay. And see that, that makes a lot of sense to me because obviously reading can be a very social hobby. It's pretty much (laughs) my most social (laughs) hobby. Uh, Is it a cooperative hobby? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. And you know what? Like, I think um, not everybody has to like everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that, um, well, 
I've often had people say to me who don't know me very well that they always thought I was really smart because I like reading, which makes me laugh because if they only knew the trash that I love reading, <laughs> they might reconsider. Um, like, I don't think that reading a lot or playing video games a lot or watching K-dramas a lot actually says really that much about you. <laughs> Everything can just be their own thing. It doesn't have yeah. to like mean something. Um, exactly. It's a little bit exhausting if you try to put some huge meaning onto every single thing that you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about today? Oh, um, oh my God, it's 12, 15. Yes. These things fly by. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, anything else I want to talk about? I don't know. I feel badly that I didn't really get to hear much from you, but, um, my partner did tell me that <laughs> you feel like you've already said everything there is to say about your own life through your podcast so far. Yeah. So it, it, it is something I identify myself as just like on a fundamental level, talking about myself is not something I, I, I enjoy doing because I don't feel like there's much to get at there. My opinions are like weekly held and I, I, I go through like, I've been in this kind of like work game sleep routine for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um, Things that I may need to take up with a therapist at some point down the line, but. Well, I guess if that's where we're going to wrap things up, my, <laughs> final, my final item would be um, if people can afford it, I highly encourage everyone to try therapy at least once. Um, it's something that I've done for a really long time. And I don't know, it can be more or less helpful depending on like your circumstances. Um, but I feel like now that I'm an adult, maybe, maybe the kids are going to be okay, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like it's not that big of a deal to talk about being in therapy now, at mm -hmm. least in a social context. When I was in high school and I was in therapy, uh, you could not talk about that. You know, people would oh, yeah, it was this thing that was just crazy. like, you're, you're seeking, uh, you're seeking like assistance for your mental health. Like there, that, that must mean that like you're, there's something, something wrong with you. Everyone's doing fine. It's like, no, not everyone's doing fine. And that's yeah, okay. Exactly. And I think, um, I guess something that I'll say about it is that if you are considering it, um, yeah, it's kind of like online dating, I would imagine. Like you'll go on a lot of really shitty first dates or have some shitty interactions before you find somebody that you actually click with. That is like a very common experience For where sure. you go and you're like, oh, this person and I, we don't really, we don't gel. It doesn't work. Um, especially if you wanted to talk about something cultural. So like cultural and gender issues, I think are pretty common. So all of my therapists have been women because that just is more comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people prefer a therapist who has a similar experience, you know? Um, so if you are looking for a therapist, start there, you know, whoever's listening, um, psychology today, the website has filters where you can filter by things like, um, ethnicity, religion, gender identity, um, as well as their modalities of therapy, like what kind of treatment they offer, because I think a lot of people don't realize how important that is. Like, I don't know. 
explaining the details of your cultural experience to someone is a different thing than trying to <laughs> unpack your your emotional baggage, whatever that might be. Um, Maybe that's so sort that's of fundamental understanding of like their their point of view. To, yeah, it's to understand like if, where they're coming from and why they might be feeling some type of way. Right. And so I think a really common one is um, like people who are asexual, for example, when they go to therapy, a very common experience that asexual people have is that their therapist just says, ah, you are, you're, it's because you're not getting fucked. You need to have more sex and then all your problems will go away. And it's like, okay, well, clearly I need to work with a therapist who understands where I'm coming from. Do not get it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it sounds funny, like when you talk about it on a podcast, but that kind of thing can actually be really damaging for people, Mm -hmm. as you could probably imagine. So, yeah, I, I have had some very mediocre therapy experiences and some really good experiences. And um, I just recommend that if people are interested in doing it, they like know what they want out of the experience. Because if you can't explain why you're there, uh, it's, it's not help. worth your money. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can't help you like just like yourself more. You need some more specific goals. <laughs> and I speak, I, I'm saying that as somebody who has in the past had the goal, I want to like myself more. <laughs> like you need, you need more specific goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost forgot to ask my, my, my final question mm-hmm. that I like to ask all my guests. Uh, Dania, if you were to host your own version of this show where you talk to someone you haven't spoken to in a long time, uh, does anybody come to mind? And if so, who who would that be? Oh, okay. So the person who comes to mind, I don't know if you, I don't think you would know her. Uh, her name's Carrie Lee and we did congregated classroom together like a million years ago. <laughs> and the reason why her name comes to mind is because I feel like she's a person who I've almost reconnected with like half a dozen times, but Mm -hmm. we never actually have. We both went to Queens, but I think she was one or two years behind me. So we were never really in the same place at the same time. And I also work with her mom now. So her mom is one of my colleagues and every time I see her mom, I just think, man, I wonder how Carrie's doing. (laughs) So Carrie Lee, if you're out there, hope you're doing well. <laughs> Hit me up sometime. Excellent. Um, I was going to ask what you had to plug, but we just went through a whole spiel about uh, advocating for uh, finding a therapist. So that's that's taken care of. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to like promote at this time? Uh, no, except for the fact that I think everyone needs to strive less and rest more. Excellent. Dania, thank you so much for spending this lovely Saturday morning with me. Not to expose entirely when I recorded this, but um, yeah, just just a huge thank you. Um, oh, yeah. Thanks for inviting me. It was really fun. We haven't yeah. had like a proper conversation, just the two of us. Pretty much like ever. Years. Like the only times that I've seen you are uh, at any sort of group function. And uh, I I do not function in those settings. Um, and, uh, I will, I will say, uh, there was one incident in which, uh, I think you like spotted this out and specifically came to talk to me and I thank you for that. Um, anyways, uh, to you, dear listener, whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you next time.
So we, 